Please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Revelation, the last book in your Bible. We're going to read verses 14 through 22. This is a letter to the church at Laodicea. It was to be delivered by the Apostle John. The letter originates from Jesus, and he gives John the responsibility of making sure it reaches the angel of the church of Laodicea. If you're familiar with the second and third chapters of Revelation, you knew that there were seven letters which were written by Jesus for these churches, all of which, if we were to go to where they would have been located then, it would be called Asia Minor. Today it's in the nation of Turkey. And each one of these letters was addressed by Jesus to the angel of that church. Scholars are agreed, and I'm in harmony with their interpretation, that the word angel, the word angel, listen to the way it sounds in the original language of the New Testament, angelos, los angelos, the city of the angels, Los Angeles. And actually, the word angelos, in its most basic meaning, is the word messenger. And consequently, these letters were written to the pastor of these respective churches. It was their responsibility to expound these letters to their congregations. We come to the last of the seven letters to the churches in Asia Minor. Look at verse 14. I'm going to read it. You follow along silently as I read it aloud. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire, that you may become rich, and white garments, that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and I salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on His throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This was a message which was given by Jesus through the Spirit of God to the Apostle John in the late 1st century A.D. Fast forward to the 21st century. This is proof positive that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to discern the intentions and thoughts of our hearts. Because this message 
is for us today. We need to hear what the Lord has to say to the church at Coronado today through this letter. Perhaps you have recollection or have you seen excerpts of a series of advertisements. An advertising firm was enlisted by the stockbroker firm, E.F. Hutton, if you remember those. Let me give you some examples of this, the best way to illustrate it. One shows Tom Watson, who was a great PGA golfer in the last several decades. He's no longer at the top of his game, obviously. But he had just come off another Grand Slam victory, and he was enlisted by the E.F. Hutton advertisers to represent the firm. The scene is he's just teed off, and he's with his playing partner, another PGA player, and as they leave the tee, this player says to Tom, what are you going to do with all that money, Tom? He says in response, my stockbroker is E.F. Hutton, and he says, and all of a sudden all the gallery around him just stops, everybody, and they're tuned in to hear what he has to say. Because when E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. That's the whole campaign. Another example of this, two businessmen are on a trip, on an airplane. There are many other passengers, but these two men happen to be the only two who are awake. And one leans across the aisle and says, what do you think about this investment? And he shows him a possible investment. And the man responds by saying, my stockbroker is E.F. Hutton, and he says, and the same thing happens. In this case, everyone wakes up from a dead sleep, and they're glued on what E.F. Hutton has to say. And the last one, this is a favorite one of mine. There were many of them, but this is my favorite. A kindergarten teacher is speaking to her class, and she says, who would like to say the ABCs? And there's one little girl who's most eager, and he call, she calls on this little girl, her name is Annie, and she, she stands up, and then she begins the ABCs, A, B, C, D, E, F. And it's as if she's had a brain freeze, really. And then she says, Hutton. And all these kindergartens gather around her because they want to know what E.F. Hutton has to say. From the ridiculous to the absurd, for sure, in these particular advertisements. The implication, and it was effective, by the way, is clear. Jesus says to us in verse 22, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus is speaking to this church about what he wants for the Laodicean believers. He says, first of all, complacency is not what I want from you. You say, I am rich, is what he says a little later in this passage, but you're really not at all. You say you're self-sufficient, you have need of nothing, but you actually are in dire need of something which money cannot buy. We're going to see what that is as we work our way through this passage. When I was a relatively young man, I was hospitalized in Fort Worth, Texas, anticipating surgery. I was in a room with a man who was easily 30, maybe 40 years older than I. His name was Skeet. He was a true Texan. He was a man who was a veteran of many surgeries. And he told 
every one of them to me. And I was nervous to begin with, but after I heard him talk, I said, Oh, Lord, I need you badly in this situation. He could sense, and I think he was seeking to create quite a bit of anxiety in me by the things he told me. But he said to me, Mike, excuse me, I'm trying to say it the way he said, Mike, he said, in the morning they're going to come in here and they're going to give you a don't care shot. (laughs) And you won't care if they slit your throat after you get that shot. (laughs) I swallowed real hard. And then he said, you just wait, Mike. You know, Skeet was a prophet. I was in the room with the prophet. A nurse came in, gave me the shot, and he was right. Before I got to the operating room, I was loopy. I'd never been drunk before, but I was loopy like a drunk in that situation, and I really didn't care. Do you know what Jesus is saying here would suggest although the devil's name is not mentioned in this letter, that Satan, who is our adversary, we read that verse from 1 Peter 5. If we read just a little further in the next verse, it says, our adversary, the devil, is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. It's true of churches too. He has given the church a pre-op shot and he's operating on us and we don't even know it. Because we are settling for less than God's will for us. Less than the best. Complacency, this idea of complacency is suggested by Jesus' words on lukewarmness. Before we do that, let's look at the way in which Jesus describes himself in this introduction. He calls himself, in verse 14, the Amen. Of course, this word is a word which was an Old Testament word. It was used also in the New Testament, obviously. This is the only time it's ever used to describe God himself. But what better description of Jesus Christ? Because the word amen means utterly trustworthy, absolutely true. Jesus is indeed the only utterly trustworthy human being who's ever lived. And it's because he's not only fully human, he's also fully God. And God cannot lie. That's what the scripture says in the book of Titus. God is not a man that he should lie, the Bible says in the book of Numbers. Then Jesus goes on to describe himself as the faithful and true witness. The word faithful reminds me of what Paul writes to Timothy when he says, if we are faithless, God remains faithful. God cannot deny or disown Himself. The very warp and woof of His character is that He is faithful. He is true. He is the beginning of the creation of God, the Scripture says. Critics of the deity of Jesus Christ have said, yeah, this proves that Jesus is not God because He had a beginning. They don't know their Greek language very well. Because the word beginning, arche, is the word. And wherever it's used, it's not talking about beginning or first in time. Rather, it's talking about first in priority. This word is used to describe Jesus in the introduction of the book of John. The scripture says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. 
All things came into being through Him. He was the source. That's what this word beginning means. The fountainhead, the origin, the source of creation. This vast universe. Jesus was the one through whom this universe was made. In the spiritual realm, which is the more important realm, Jesus is the author, the architect of the spiritual realm. Jesus is the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God from the beginning, is what the Scripture says. So we need to pay careful attention, don't we, to whatever Jesus says. We can take it to the bank. Verse 15, he says, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. The word that Jesus uses here when he says you're not cold is the word which was used to describe the temperature of water just above the freezing point, just above it. No ice formed yet, but it's just a hair above the freezing mark when the water will begin to turn to solid form. Jesus would rather be in the, us be in the camp of the cold than in the state of indifference. Why? Because a cold person will eventually get cold enough to seek the heat. Jesus would rather we openly, defiantly, violently reject Him than to be lukewarm. That's hard to believe, isn't it? But that's what this text teaches. This is what Jesus would say to us today. The Laodicean church was not hot. The word for hot means heated up to the point of boiling. Perhaps once they had been on fire for the Lord, but now the fire had died down. Dante, in his signature work, The Inferno, talks about complacent people, the place for complacent people. He talks about such people being in the inferno, in hell. And he describes them as wretched people and nearly soulless people. Complacency had infected the body of Christ at Laodicea, making Jesus violently ill. Why do I say that? Because what we read just a moment ago, the last part of verse 16, I will spit you out of my mouth. The word to spit means to reject with extreme disgust. It's the only time it's used in the entire Bible, this word. This is a picture that has its roots in the geography of this area. Not too far from Laodicea was another city, Hierapolis. And near Hierapolis, there were some very to the eye, appealing springs that bubbled forth water. The water, to look at it, was pristine. It was pure, clean. And people who weren't in on the nature of that water, who were traveling and they were nearing Hierapolis, tired, thirsty, they would quickly run to the water, cup their hands, and then drink. But no sooner had they gotten the water into their mouths that they would reject it. Very strongly, because it was so distasteful. This is the word that Jesus chooses. This is the picture, undoubtedly, that Jesus knew would be clear to the inhabitants of Laodicea. Can you imagine how uncomfortable this church made Jesus? 
I wish you were either one or the other, but not lukewarm. I'd rather you be cold than be lukewarm. And certainly I'd rather you be warm in your relationship to me. Christ, we can see Him almost aching, as it were, for either coldness or hotness in this church. Complacency expresses itself in self-reliance. Look at verse 17. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy, and you have need of nothing. Dan read from Proverbs chapter 30. And we know in that chapter how the writer of Proverbs talks about the fact that he would never, rather not be rich or poor because if he became rich, he would be tempted to say, I have need of nothing, just like these residents of the church at Laodicea were saying about themselves. I have need of nothing, and you forget the Lord. Or you're so poor, you resort to stealing and you dishonor the name of the Lord. These people had their stuff together, as they would have probably said. Laodicea was a wealthy commercial center located at the intersection of three very lucrative trade routes going from east to west and west to east. The three main industries were banking, Black wool used to make clothing and carpet and salve, which was exported throughout the world. There was a medical school there, which was world-renowned. It would be like Mayo's Clinic or MD Anderson here in the United States. And people would come who had eye problems because they had found ways of helping people deal with their problems with their eyes. The strength of the Laodicean economy is illustrated by an event which occurred about 30 years earlier than the writing of this letter to that church. A major earthquake hit the area. All the surrounding cities besides Laodicea were devastated to the point they didn't have enough resourcing to rebuild the city. Laodicea was damaged badly too. But because of the strength of their own treasury there, in the city, they were able to rebuild without soliciting the help of the Roman government to do so. The Laodiceans were materially prosperous in a way that they thought was by their own hands. But we know what the Bible says, do we not, about where wealth comes from? Are you familiar that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights? comes from above. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, the Bible, in a series of ways, talks about how don't you know that God has given you the power to make wealth? Now, obviously, we all don't have equal power. I don't understand that, but it doesn't bother me that there are a lot of people who make a lot more money than me. In the body of Christ, we should be happy for one another if others are being prospered. That's what the Scripture says. We're to rejoice with them. And we're also at the same time to be content with what we have. Why? Because we have ultimate contentment in the person of Jesus Christ. He's the one who brings final contentment. You can be as rich as Bill Gates and Melanie Gates and be as miserable as imaginable because you're not trusting in the Lord. 
the church at Laodicea was suffering from the built-in danger of prosperity, which leads towards self-reliance. Isn't this where the American church is, really? We have need of nothing. May I say, my brothers and sisters in Christ, friends, if we have no need, we need no Savior. When Jesus was criticized for hanging out with people who were basically near to wells, they didn't have anything, they were called sinners, and they weren't really welcome. When he was accused of that, this is what he says, It isn't the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. You could substitute, I have not come to call the wealthy, but the poor. The poor in spirit. People who know that they are spiritually bankrupt. That they cannot contribute anything to their salvation. They can only contribute to digging themselves deeper in a hole of estrangement from God because of their insistence upon Self-sufficiency. The American way, for sure. The Laodiceans saw their acquisitions as being of their own doing. Complacency exacts a heavy toll. I read an illustration about this, about a woman who was walking home from work after dark in Brooklyn, New York. She was attacked by someone who wanted to steal her purse. She resisted. She ended up being stabbed to death. And when the police arrived on the scene and began to inquire of the neighbors who were around, and this was a densely populated part of New York, Brooklyn is, if you've been in New York, you know that. And so what they discovered is that there were 34 eyewitnesses who had seen what happened. And not one of them wanted to render aid to that lady in her difficulty. Not one of them called the police until after she was gone. Wow. We need to understand that complacency exacts a heavy toll. It does so in our church and in our country as a result. What does Jesus want? This is amazing. He wants our companionship. That's what this text of Scripture teaches. That's right. The Creator of all things longs for a relationship with us. This is unimaginable. But this is what Jesus says in this passage of Scripture. He's a lot like Mercedes Brenner in relationship to the church. Miss Brenner lived in Miami. And she had come for the 59th time to the gated estate of a man, Rolanda Duvalin, whom she was infatuated with. She had come one night and she knocked on the door and would not stop knocking until the police came and took her into custody and imprisoned her awaiting trial. Jesus is one like her. The title of the article which I read about that was simply One Way Love Affair. Jesus Christ wants our companionship He wants our fellowship in the church of Jesus Christ. And we stiff-arm Him. We keep Him at 
arm's length. Consider the kind of companionship Jesus wants from us. He wants to eat with us. What does that have to do with anything? In America, we're just on the run all the time, aren't we? We don't take time to really rest and eat at the same time. We don't even, in most cases, eat together as families anymore because we're always doing something like this. Excuse me. (coughs) On the run. There were three meals that were common in the day of the writing of this letter. One was the breakfast meal, and it was very simple. It consisted of bread left over from the previous day's meal and a cup of wine, and the person would take a cup of wine and dip the bread, eat it rather quickly, and out the door to work. The second meal was the noonday meal, and it would be the equivalent of a brown bag for us. It would consist of leftovers from the meal from the evening before. But when the day's work was done, I can just see those workers who worked so hard as they finished the day's work, they were going home, they were looking forward to being home because they were going to have the meal that Jesus is talking about. It was a meal where they would sit down together and they would really dine with their family. And it was not one that was gobbled down. It was eaten in a very leisurely manner because it consisted of more than just food for the body. It was food for the soul. It was about relating to those whom they loved and building intimacy with them and a relationship with them. So when Jesus in verse 20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He's saying, I'm hungry for your fellowship. And you're missing on opportunity to be with me. To share a meal for those Laodiceans was to share life. And this is true in our relationship with the Lord Jesus. Do you know He's standing at the door and He's knocking? And He wants in. It's not because He's a moocher. He wants to dine with you. And wherever Jesus is, when I see Him in Scripture... When I see him in the Gospels, and you've probably seen this too, even when he was a guest, he was the host, wasn't he? That's just who he is. Ministering to us. He wants our fellowship so that we can grow spiritually, grow in relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. The word stand, I stand. The word is exactly the way it's translated in the original language of the New Testament. translates well into our word, I stand. But the form of the verb is very important because it speaks of the fact that when he writes this church, this letter, he says, I have been standing for a long time and I'm still standing because I want admission into your lives. And I'm not simply standing. What does he say? I'm knocking. The word is simply knock here. But here's a present tense verb, which means I'm knocking, I'm knocking, I'm knocking. It would be annoying if it were not such a beautiful opportunity for us to respond to him because he wants in. Many of you are familiar with the Holman Hunt 
painting, which originated in the 19th century. It's obviously a picture of Jesus wanting inside a domicile, and he's knocking on the doorway of this house. And the thing that is so amazing, and he did several revisions of this, but they all had this in common. There was a door, and he is knocking, but there's no latch on the outside. It's only in the inside by implication. Which tells us that Jesus is knocking and He wants in. But we have to open the door. This verse is often used, and I think there's a certain degree of legitimacy in so doing, to witness to people who don't know Christ. And when we're calling people to faith, we say... Christ is on the outside. He's wanting in. But this is not written to unbelievers, is it? It's written to a church. Jesus wants in to our individual lives too. Because even though this is written to a church, when He says, if anyone hears My voice, He's talking about one person. Amazingly, Christ's relationship is that of Ministering to us one to one. He wants to minister to all of us, but He really is interested in ministering to us one to one. We as believers can hinder the movement of God's Spirit, believe it or not, by keeping Jesus on the outside of our lives. Two little girls were looking at Holman Hunt's picture of Jesus knocking on the door And one said to the other, why don't they open the door to him? The other girl responded by saying, maybe they're down in the basement and can't hear him. (laughs) Too often we're in the cellar of self-sufficiency. We're not in need of anything. And therefore we can't hear the voice of Jesus. The big question isn't, is God speaking? The bigger question is, are we listening? Do we have ears to hear what the Spirit of God is saying to us about Jesus wanting our fellowship in the church, that He be the center of our church, be the center of our lives? Because the sum, the whole is the sum of the parts. Each one of us needs that kind of relationship. Do you know God, if you know Jesus and you're here today, He wants to be the center of your life. John Stott wrote a very clear statement. He said, Christ is the center of Christianity. Everything else is circumference. Everything else is circumference. Christ is to be the center. Jesus' desire for fellowship is seen in the links to which He goes to renew His church. Look at verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Permit me a moment of interpretation of these words. Those whom I love. The word translated, I love, one word in the original language, I love, that word means I keep on loving. Jesus' love is represented by His standing at the door and knocking Knocking, knocking, because He wants to come in and have relationship with us. He wants to have fellowship with us. He wants to dine with us. Those whom I love, I reprove. The word means to compel a person to see the error 
of his or her ways and to admit he or she is wrong. I reprove and discipline. Discipline is characteristic, hear carefully, of every child of God. Read Hebrews chapter 12. What son is there who reads this letter, the writer of Hebrews says, who has not been disciplined by his father? And although discipline is difficult in the moment, when you look back over the discipline is what the writer of Hebrews says, it is a good thing. Do not despise the discipline of the Lord. We have a theology that is rampant today which would indicate that God is not a God who exercises discipline in our lives. And we say if people are having hard times, it's because of their lacking faith. That's not what the Bible says. Discipline for a child of God comes in different forms. Some of it's very visible. Sometimes people are in terrible straits financially. It's a disciplinary action of God in many cases. Not all cases, but many cases. Some people are really sick. And some people are sick. Don't mishear me. Not everybody's being disciplined by God who's sick. But sometimes God gets your attention through your frailty. Has that ever happened to you? It's happened to me, I know. But it's a sign of His concern for us, actually. He loves us. He rebukes us and He disciplines us. The Bible says our God is the God of all comfort and the Father of mercy, who, mercies who comforts us in our affliction so that we in turn may be used by Him to comfort our brothers and sisters in Christ when they are afflicted. The psalmist in Psalm 119 says this in verse 71, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your statutes. In other words, I was needing some discipline so that I would get back in line with you. And Jesus talks about this. Those whom I love, I rebuke or reprove and discipline. And he says in the last part of verse 19, be zealous. And the idea is keep on being zealous This word is a word which carries with it the idea of boiling is what it carries with it. Boiling. It's a word which suggests difficulty. Being defensive if you're a mother of your child. You know, in nature we see the female of the species that we see in the animal world. They're the ones who take care of their babies. The dads don't. It's amazing how we act like animals, men, sometimes, right? But the mothers are the one. And this word for being zealous was used of a she-bear protecting her cubs from danger. We should protect our relationship with Jesus with the same zeal. And we do it by repenting of our complacency. Jesus speaks in verse 17. Pick it up in the middle of verse 17. You do not know that you are wretched, 
This word translated wretched means to be oppressed by a burden. Are you here this morning and you feel weighed down? You don't seem to be able to pinpoint why? Could be because of complacency and a refusal to be in a companionship with Jesus, a close relationship with Him. Miserable, this is a word which means pitiable, and it would suggest that the person who is in this state draws compassion from those who see that person in the state of misery. Jesus, when He looked at the multitudes, the Scripture says that He was moved with compassion because those whom He looked upon were like sheep without a shepherd. Our Lord Jesus is moved deeply when He sees us in our misery, moved to the point that He gave His life for us, makes His life available to us, calls us to relationship with Him in intimacy, to companionship with Him. Look at the next word. Poor. This is the word which means, as we would say from where I came from, dirt poor. Didn't have two nickels to rub together. It's the way it was said where I came from. Really poor. And blind. Could not see. The word blind means nearsighted. I take these glasses off. If I didn't know Eric was sitting on the front row there and Sam right behind him, I looked at them before. I think I could distinguish them, but I'm not sure. That is you, Sam, right? That is you, Eric. I've been nearsighted all my life. I can't remember not being nearsighted. I'm grateful for glasses. But that's the word here, blind. They were blind as bats spiritually because they were complacent and they were naked. Well, they had nice clothes. I mean, they had designer clothes, whatever form they would have taken in Laodicea. The word naked literally means nude. They didn't have a stitch of clothing spiritually. The worst humiliation in the ancient world was to be stripped naked. Let's look at verse 18. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire, where you may become rich. Does this mean that when you come to Jesus, you have to buy your salvation? No. We're saved by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We can't buy, but the idea here is that we may become rich, not rich in material things, but rich in spiritual things, those things which will outlast this life, but enrich this life in a way that nobody can take away from you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. There's a hymn that we never sing here that I remember. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your blessings. See what God has done. We will never be able to end counting our blessings if we know the Lord. They're infinite. And He has blessed us. And that's what they were missing. And Christ was advising them to come to Him for the riches and white garments that you may clothe yourself. Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as wool. Jesus Christ has washed our souls and will wash our souls clean with the blood that He shed on the cross. And he goes on in verse 18, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. Jesus wants to cover us up. Do you know 
how He will clothe us, how He wants to clothe us. Well, the Bible's real clear. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our righteousness. He is our sanctification. He is our wisdom. What a wardrobe. We can go in every morning and put on righteousness and put on wisdom and put on sanctification because we can put on the Lord Jesus Christ. One size fits all, by the way. Jesus is our righteousness and He's the one who covers our nakedness. An eye salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. I mentioned that this city was a city renowned worldwide for its medical school and an ointment they made. People would come from all over the world to get that ointment to salve their aching and deficient eyes. Notice the steps necessary. The steps are clear. Repent is what Jesus says. And the idea is repent earnestly. That's really what the word means. Be earnest, it says. Be zealous and repent. To repent literally means to change your mind. That's what the word in the language of the New Testament is. A change of mind, and by implication, a change of mind that results in a change of direction in our lives. Instead of being self-reliant, self-sufficient, we recognize our poverty before the Lord spiritually. We're poor in spirit and we mourn that and then we follow the Lord. And lo and behold, what happens? He begins to compensate beyond our imagination for our spiritual poverty. Be earnest, be zealous and repent and then receive Christ. If anyone opens the door, notice the emphasis on the individual, if anyone, only one person is necessary to spark a revival among any people or any church. One person. That person who hears Jesus knocking at the door. Sue Monk Kidd, in one of her books, wrote this, Every awakening to God begins with a knock. Jesus knocks. And if we respond as He would have us, we open the door by repenting of our sin, turning away from self-sufficiency, self-reliance, and turning to Christ's dependence completely, yielding, surrendering our lives to the Lord. C.S. Lewis, the renowned Christian apologist who made a migration from atheism to agnosticism to spokesman for the Christian faith. He was a professor of literature at both Oxford and Cambridge, a man of letters, brilliant. Listen to what he says about this whole treatment of the idea of commitment to Christianity as seen in Jesus Christianity is a statement which, if false, is of no importance. And if true, it is of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is of moderate importance. Are you treating the Christian faith moderately, lukewarmly, 
Well, this is for you today, if that's the case. Jesus is knocking. And He's saying, let me in because I love you and I have the plan that you need in order to be all that you were originally created to be. Would you bow your head? In your own way, in your own heart, speak to God in response to this teaching. Lord, we come to you this morning and I say to you, Lord, forgive me for growing complacent in my walk with you and help me to renew my accommodation of you in my heart. I want to set you apart as Lord in my heart. Not a sometime Savior, but an all-time Master. Lord, please do this in our church. May everyone here who knows you say, Lord, come in. Dine with me. Give me your full companionship. I need you, Lord. I trust you, Lord. Please do that. Thank you for this prayer, Lord, that you've given us. And now we ask that you'd move in all the hearts of people here that have been spoken to you by the Spirit of God that they would trust you.